0: Well, at this point in the service, I'd ask you to go ahead and pull out your Bible or your phone and turn to the book of Philippians with me. If you remember, before we just did our Reconnect series, uh, we were in the book of Philippians. And we're going to continue that in the summer in our series called Rejoice in Hope. So turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. And if you remember the last time we were in Philippians, it's been a few weeks Uh, We looked at how we're to be united in Christ. And now Paul gives us a gospel reason for that unity. Read with me in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Sometimes leading isn't what we think it is. Let me say that again. Sometimes leading isn't what we think it is. In a 2015 article in Harvard Business Review, Carol Walker wrote that the challenge for most business leaders today and just to be fair, I don't, not just business leaders, but even leaders in politics, leaders in schools and sports, and yeah, I have to admit, even church, the main problem is this, they usually lead in reactive ways from experience, from others' examples, and even they implicitly work from an I'm-in-charge, top-down mentality. Walker suggests that the results are that few leaders have a framework of leadership that promotes winning together. Walker's solution, though, is simple. She says Robert Greenleaf's idea from 30 years ago of servant leadership is a great place to start for any kind of leadership. We might say it's not just from Robert Greenleaf, it's from the Bible, as you'll see. Granted, as Walker says, servant doesn't sound as powerful or as fun as boss, does it? (laughs) But serving does something more important than tell people what to do. It influences, it It changes people, and even the organization in lasting ways. And, and here's why, servant leaders, at their best, don't make things about themselves. They remove self-interest and personal glory from their motivation. Th- that, as a result, draws out the gifts of others, it inspires trust, and the leader is moving past himself to something bigger in the process. The the follower is built up, and the whole is built up as well. Now, this posture of looking out for others and setting them up for success is a formula that we'd all agree is a a good one to reach goals together. So I would summarize it this way. Servant leadership is a setup for winning together. If servant leadership then is the superior long-term way of leading, in places like business, it would be fair to say then that leadership isn't normally what we think it is. And I might add, great leaders who help us win together aren't typically who we think they are. Philippians 2 has something to say about winning together through servant leadership today. And we return to our Rejoice and Hope series in Philippians where we've been looking at Paul, Paul's letter to a group of Christians who were struggling in the first century with relationships uh, inside the church with internal challenges like conflicts, like, uh, like a false doctrine. And they also were dealing with external challenges from a culture that resisted Christianity very proactively. And we come to one of those pinnacle texts of the Bible today, that I have to admit is a little humbling to even come to in some way, where Paul actually exhorts the Philippians to win together in unity and to do it with a distinct reference point. A living Lord and a living leader in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lord and leader we don't usually expect. So that brings us to our question for the text What is the mind, uh, the way of Christ that we should practice together so that in following Him we can win together? Well, Philippians 2 will call us to think with the gospel, uh, to follow with humility, and to follow with hope as well. So let's look at verse 5 and dive into chapter 2 and verse 5 where Paul begins and pulls us into this idea of togetherness that he's actually been talking about for a while in the book of Philippians. In verse 5, this is what he says, "...have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus." Now, our text starts with this imperative, you know, an imperative being do this, respond this way, act this way. And he says, "...have this mind among yourselves." Now, immediately we got to say... What does he mean by this and this mind? And, and is he talking about the verses that came prior, uh, what he said earlier, or is he talking about what comes afterwards? Well, I'd suggest to you, along with, uh, along with commentators like my old professor, Moises Silva, that there's no reason to think that he isn't starting with the prior verses, but he's also tying the following verses together. And so, he going backwards in the first verses of this chapter, he says, "'Have his mind among you,' which is not the first time he's mentioned a mind, a mind of the church in particular. In fact, in chapter 1, uh, verse 27, he's been calling the Philippians to let their lives uh, reflect uh, or be worthy of the gospel themselves, and that this same life was meant to be lived together. In fact, in, in verse uh, 27, chapter 1, he says, "...they should stand together with one spirit," In one mind, there it is, there's mind showing up. And in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, they should be of the same mind, have the same love, and again, be of one mind. He keeps talking about this one mind, same mind, over and over again. And that's four times he said it. So that brings up the question what in the world is he talking about? But there's one mind that he keeps talking about. Well, what he's talking about is this focus. Focus not just as individuals, but also as believers together in the church. With the countless things that we can look at in the world, Paul is saying, fix your eyes on one thing, Christ, and what he wants of us together. That vision of Christ and what he wants is found right here in the gospel word. Now, why is this so important that he wants us to focus? Well, what we know about the history of men and, dare I say, in our own experiences, right, with, with family or neighborhoods or businesses or churches, and it is super hard to keep people together and connected. Because of sin, there is a spiritual inertia in all of us uh, to move away rather than to connect, even though our deepest longings are very often to connect. Of course, there is a well-known joke Uh, That you may have heard about a man stranded on an island for a few years until a rescue boat found him. And when the rescue boat uh, got to the island, the people were amazed to see what the man had built in order to survive on the island. The man had built three different structures out of bamboo and leaves. So they asked him, they said, what's this first structure? And the man said, that's my home. That's where I live every day. And then uh, they asked him about the second structure. He said, that's where I go to church. And then they asked him about the third structure, and he kind of got a frown on his face, said, well, that's the church I used to go to. <laughs> now, I'm picking on us Christians right now, but let's come clean. Whether you're a Christian or not, there is this internal inertia that we all have to move away from people. And i got to tell you, it's in me, it's in you, it's in all of us. And when we're left to on devices, we just keep moving away. Paul is saying in our text, stay together, work together. There needs to be a sameness of mind, a focus, that starts with the truth of the gospel outside of us. And that's key. You have to understand the truth of the gospel, ground in the, in the word, outside of us. And here's why most of us want to work from a truth inside of us. The problem with that is if we don't work from God's truth, Sometimes all we're left with is our truth. And if you're left with your truth, we know that usually doesn't end well when it comes to community or relationships or anything like that. The way to stay together is to focus on Christ and his way found on the gospel. Now, fair enough, someone may say. But you know this whole business of having the same mind, it sounds a little bit like groupthink. Is this sameness of mine all about us having a form of tribalism where we all just have to step up and, and toe the line with everybody else? Well, here's what I'd say. The truth is all of us, including me, are, are prone to groupthink, especially when it's, when it's a relative to people and when we have no center. The hard part about groupthink, though, is that it can become unbelievably burdensome. The mob will come up with a million rules and they are always changing. That's why pop culture can be exciting sometimes but also a burden because you find out i got to do another thing. When's this going to end? And it's changing. The rules are regularly changing. Paul's not talking about groupthink or a series of changing uh, in the latest cultural rules. He is pointing backward to the mind of Christ in chapters 1 and 2 and he's pointing forward to the one we should focus on in order to have the mind of christ in verses five through seven look at that with me in verses five it says this have this mind among yourselves which is in christ jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant and being born in human likeness of men paul turns his eyes uh, to the very center of the church, Jesus. Jesus Christ. Christ is the one who gathers us together. Christ is the one who keeps us together. Christ is the one who builds his church. And he's this extraordinary king who puts together very different people from all kinds of angles and, and ethnic backgrounds and political points of view. The whole nine yards, everywhere you come from it, Jesus puts them together together. And and this is something to get excited about, and here's why: it's hard to tell in our English translation here in verses uh, five through eleven, but most commentators agree that verses six through eleven, in particular, are some kind of hymn that the church actually sang together regularly in the first century. Let me put it this way: verses six through eleven is theology that sings. It's theology that sings. It's meant to be sung together as a body. At this point, somebody will say, well, what's worth singing about and what this, this scripture is saying? Well, the first thing I'd highlight is that, uh, is that, did you notice the word form shows up in our text three times? The Greek word for form here means an essential attribute, the very essence of who Jesus is. He's getting right at who Jesus is as identity. in an age where we're talking so much about identity, here we get to focus on Christ's identity. What was his essence? What was his identity? His essence was that of God, of man and of a servant. of God, of man and of a servant. Did you notice the text plainly says that Jesus is God? Now, let me be clear, He didn't become God? He wasn't merely imitating kind of God-like in some ways. He is actually God is what the text is saying. His essence is that of God. Now here's what that means. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is eternal. He existed before the creation of the world. He's infinite. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful, and he's omnipresent as the Son of God. Jesus is the sovereign who created the world and who oversees all of history that has been going on from the very beginning. He's always been God in the Trinity. That does not change. Now, all of a sudden, Jesus gets a wee bit bigger than we're used to thinking, even in our view of him uh, in our culture. Second, it says this. It says that his very essence is also that of man. He took the form of man, as it says in our text, being made in our likeness. Now, here's the thing. Jesus was every bit of a man like all of us here are, yet without sin. He had Y chromo- and X chromosomes. He probably cried as a baby. He was an awkward, gangly teenager at some point. And dare I say it, he was the best of what mankind was meant to be in his life in every way. After his birth, he became a man. And in short, as the ancient creed says, he was fully God and fully man. These two truths are held in tension. Now here's what that means for us and for our togetherness. If the Son of God became a man in Christ... That means this, being human isn't below God. Being human isn't below God. That means our dignity is way greater than we could ever conceive of for ourselves. Because God never became anything else. He never became an animal. He never became anything else. He only became a man in history. When you are with another person in this room, as you go out, even in our neighbors and friends, even those who don't know Jesus, you need to realize exactly what C.S. Lewis said. You're in the presence of greatness. Christianity has the highest view of man of any worldview. And that's because Jesus became one of us. Jesus became one of us. Here's what else that means for us. God moved towards us to relate to us. Jesus as the God-man bridges a gap between a holy God and unholy men like you and me. He bridges that gap, and he's so relatable as a result. Now, this is unlike the agnostic God of our time, who's out there as a benevolent grandfather but never seems to engage us do not miss that Jesus left the glories of heaven to meet with us personally to bridge that gap. Let me ask you, have you ever met anybody really important? Like somebody who's a famous person in some way who's done a significant thing in the world, achieved something? Well, here's the thing. If you usually meet them, you usually don't forget that experience, right? You'll tell people the story, oh, yeah, I met so-and-so. Like one time, I met Bob Hope. Now, some of you are younger, like Bob who? But Bob Hope was probably the most famous uh, comedian around back uh, in the 20th century. So show my age a little bit. Well, I still tell stories about that. Well, here's the thing. Imagine someone not just famous, you meeting them, but they start talking with you. And they not only start talking with you, they stay with you. That's exactly what Jesus has done for you and for me. He moved towards us, and he not only starts talking to us and with us, he stays with us. Now, what did Jesus do to stay with us, to talk with us, to engage us? Well, verse 6 and 7 tell us, that Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the nature, or the form, rather, of a servant. What that means is Jesus didn't grasp his divinity. He didn't take it by force, if you want to use kind of the Greek language here. Another way to say that is this, and you guys will get kind of relate to this. He didn't throw his authority and weight around. He didn't say, hey, man, I'm God. Give me respect. Come on. Show me the goods right now. He was not demanding like that. He actually humbled himself. And he even emptied himself. Did you see that in our text? What in the world does that mean? Well, it's sometimes assumed, and I must say, even among Christians, that when Jesus, the eternal Son of God, left heaven and came to earth, he put off some of his divine qualities, temporarily. Temporarily. And uh, I want you just to kind of think with me hard for a second here. It's thought that he emptied himself was a way he stopped knowing all. He stopped being omnipresent. He stopped being all-powerful, but that is not the case. This is going to blow your mind. (laughs) But it gets to how glorious Jesus was and is for us even today. Jesus came to earth and became a man, but he did not stop being, being God in any way. You ready for this? He was both omnipresent and localized in his body. He was both all-knowing and yet learning as a kid then a teen, then an adult. Jesus right now is at the right hand of God the Father in a living, resurrected body, and here's the thing he's told you and me. He's with us to the end of the age right now. This It's theology we're singing about. Jesus is infinitely great, and he's close to us. There's only one response to that. You worship him. Who is like this? Paul is saying that Jesus is this, in fact, really great king, but he doesn't come throwing his weight around. No, quite the contrary. He came to serve and humble himself to death on the cross. Now, let's get this really straight. Jesus Christ came as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's the one who created the world. He's the one who owns everything. Everything you see out here, everything that you have, and even the cars that we have out in the parking lot, Jesus owns it all. But he also came to serve you and me. This gets to the definition of leadership that Jesus himself talks about in Mark 10 and 45. Remember that? The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What does that mean and how he relates to us? Well, go back to verse 3 of our text. Real quick, look at your Bible in verse 3. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Folks, that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus considered us more important than himself. He looked not only to his own interest, but he looked to ours. He not only looked to his glory, but to our interest caught up in his glory. He was willing to take the penalty of our sin at the cross and become a slave so we wouldn't have to be slaves anymore. You see what's happening in this text, guys? We live in a world where greatness and glory seems to have this upward trajectory to the top of the org chart. And look, in some places there's no problem with that, in business or in organizations. But what this text is telling us is Christ, on the other hand, has this downward trajectory to the very bottom of the org chart. there is this bicycle race in India that's really unusual. The object of the race, you ready for this, is to go the shortest distance possible in a specified time. So at the start of the race, everybody lines up their bikes on the starting line. There's a guy there with a gun. And then the gun sounds, and here's the deal, the bicyclists stay in place as long as they can without moving too far. Now, of course, you're disqualified if you tip over or you put your foot on the ground to stop yourself, so they're just inching forward and one by one staying back. Now, I want to do a thought experiment with you all. What if you lined up in that race with the fanciest racing bike imaginable? Think of all the kind of Tour de France bikes out there. And what if you lined up and you didn't know the rules? And you took off going as fast as you could when the gun sounded. I mean, you'd be thinking, wow, man, I am flying. I'm leaving these people behind like crazy. And it's amazing. I'm winning. This is great. And then you hear the gun go off again for the end of the race. And you think, I've won. When in fact, you've lost. You thought being first was winning when actually being last is winning. See, this is the crazy and glorious part about Jesus and about Christianity and the kingdom of God. Being last is being first with our God. Now this was insane to first century hearers like the Philippians. Paul is saying that Jesus is the servant leader who was last of all the lowest servant, the ultimate loser at the cross. And in that was glory. Dying for our sins, Jesus did that so we might have life in him. Now, if you would have heard this word, of a, a, a word about a hero figure, a servant king dying on a cross in the first century, the Roman or Greek would have looked to you and thought, this is insane. But so would Americans. Because we like winners. We like the guy at the top of the heap. Heroes don't die in the most disgraceful form of execution. They win. But here's where Jesus breaks the mold. As the suffering and dying servant leader, Jesus' servant leadership of the cross makes it so we can win together. So we can win together. Now, what's that got to do with how we follow the way of Jesus, and live together. Well, Jesus took the road of humility and love for you and me. He did it when he washed his disciples' feet and, of course, supremely when he died on the cross. We don't die for each other's sins, but you and I are called to a life of servanthood and humility and love. To deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow Jesus means we go low before Jesus and each other. Now, here's one way you can go low. You and I have many rights in Christ and lots of cultural preferences. But as Romans 14 and 15 teach, Christ did not live to please himself. It literally says that. He gave up his rights in order to love. In almost 40 years of Jesus, I can tell you guys, learning real love has meant I must humble myself and give up my rights regularly. Because I like life on my terms. But if you're going to follow Jesus, you'll, be, you'll have a series of experiences where you'll have to give up your rights and give up life on your terms for a greater good of his kingdom and for his glory. It's how we win together. Now, somebody at this point may say, well, why in the world would I give up all this stuff? You know, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Jesus, humble yourself before the Lord, even other people. Why would I do that? Is it worth it? Well, it was for Jesus. Look at verse 9 with me. It says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is in every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Don't you see? It was Jesus giving us this implication of life for ourselves that when you go low with God, two things happen. With Jesus in particular, it said he was exalted and God bestowed on him the name above every name. Now, Jesus' exaltation for those theology buffs came in his resurrection, ascension, and he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, right now ruling over us, right here, with us. Now, the Father gave him the name of names, the one name whereby we all must be saved. Jesus is the one Lord and Savior of all. And, And for all the humiliation that Jesus went through, Going low, what this tells us is this, is that God vindicates him. God vindicates him. He was vindicated. God came through on what Jesus himself said. Remember when Jesus said this? He that exalts himself will be humbled, but he also says he that humbles himself will be exalted. Well, guess what? Jesus is living this out himself. That's what he's doing. Here's what that means for you and for me. In the long run and in the short run. In the long one, if you ever have felt like you gave up something for Jesus and never got something back, like you lost something in some ways, I've got some hope for you, especially when you're trying to serve Jesus for holy purposes. For example, if you have held your ground at your career for Jesus the best you can and tried to live with integrity in a business that may at times want have integrity, fraying at the sides, there is hope. Vindication and reward will come to you. Eternal life of Christ awaits with a treasure that will not spoil, perish, or fade. Now, short-term, and this is important to realize, because of what Je- this rhythm that Jesus lives in, we also have to live in the rhythm with Jesus. See, Jesus' life was one of humiliation and exaltation so if you're gonna follow Jesus really follow him in his way you're gonna live that life too where you go low and he will lift you up where there's humiliation and then there's exaltation in his time in his place and you and I know this repentance is like this when you really come to grips with your sin you have to go low before the Lord but he's the one who eventually lifts you up and brings you to a place of glory that you could never, ever manufacture yourself. Here's what uh, uh, James says Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. If you're a follower of Christ, you are going to go through humbling times where you will have to learn how to give up your rights, where you'll have to learn to repent. But give the Lord time. This is our struggle. We're impatient with the Lord. Give him time. He will lift you up. And at the very end, here's what he'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. That, my friends, is worth living for. One last application. Our verses tell us what the larger long-run and short-run point is of Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. This is true for every person alive, whether you're Christian or not. It says this, every knee shall bow. And every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. For believers, that means we will lead the way in bowing to Jesus as a life. And that's what happens. If you follow him, he's going to have you bowing in new ways all the time as a life. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're bound to something. You're bound to something. question is, does that something love you even to death on the cross? You have to know that this idea of bowing is provocative because who likes to bow? I mean, we're prideful people. We like to maintain our dignity, but here's the thing. Jesus went to the cross and suffered the greatest indignity possible so that you and I could have dignity. Jesus was resurrected so that we might enjoy a kind of life that we could never manufacture with our riches, with our achievements. He gave us that life. Wherever you are right now, if you've got some struggle in life that feels too big for you, that is an opportunity for you to bow, for you to say, Jesus, I submit to you, and I want to follow you anew. Just wait on him. He'll lift you up in some extraordinary way. Now imagine, and if an entire church of people set their minds to bowing to Jesus, you know how that would bring us together? I'm not saying that Christians never disagree. We do over many things. What I'm saying is when we disagree, with Jesus in view, bowing to his will, we stay together together because we answer to him fundamentally. Go to the servant king and ask his will together so we can win together. In conclusion, in April 1995, Joe Montana, the great quarterback of the San Francisco 49ers, was honored in San Francisco at his retirement. 20,000 people were there screaming with joy, welcoming Joe back to the city. John Madden was there, of course, of uh, the famous uh, commentator and uh, former coach. And John Madden said to everybody, in front of everybody, Joe Montana was the greatest quarterback he had ever seen in his life. Then Hall of Fame coach Bill Walsh got up and spoke. Everyone was cheering for Joe and his greatness as Bill Walsh got up. And then Bill Walsh said this, Sobering thing. He said, he told the crowd, hey, you weren't celebrating his greatness in 1979. In 1979, San Francisco drafted Montana in the third round, and the 49er fans and critics came out wondering why they'd pick this skinny guy from Notre Dame. But here's the thing. Everyone who loves football knows who Joe Montana is. He became the consummate professional and team leader and won four Super Bowls in the process. At first glance, Joe Montana was very, and he still is, very unimpressive. But he rose to become the greatest. How do you see Jesus today? Is he unimpressive? Small to you? Or is, the, is he only the God-man the greatest Lord and Savior, and only true one in history. The untamable Lord who served you calls us to bow and serve him now. Don't miss a new way to humble yourself before the Lord so that he'll lift you up. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you have spoken this amazing text, and um, we want to pause before you because you sent Jesus into our world personally to meet us personally to engage us right now. And Jesus, because you're a living Lord at the right hand of the Father, we can enjoy a living relationship with you here and now. And I pray that for all of us as we walk away from here today, that we would taste that relationship and follow you in this life of of humbleness only waiting for you to exalt us in your unique ways. This is a very strange way of living, Lord, we all confess. But we praise you that you've not only led the way, but through that way you've given us eternal life, that we can rest on you, Jesus, and live in, in a hope eternal for the rewards to come. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.